Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Rob Petrozo, the co-founder and chief product officer of Rally Road. Rob tells us how a kid with a passion for art went on to co-found a fintech business that lets people invest in the stuff they're passionate about. Such a cool company and such a good story ahead. Let's dive right in. All right, Rob, welcome to the pod, man. Thanks for coming on. Likewise. Thank you, my friend. Uh, So you're in New York. You've got a very, very cool, disruptive fintech company, and you're surrounded by cool collectibles. I'd love to hear about... I'm sure we'll hear about how those two worlds collide. So give us the teaser of what the business is, and then we'll get into uh, who you are and and how this all came to be. Yeah, so I appreciate it too, man. So the short answer is that Rally is the first ever liquid stock market for buying and selling equity and collectibles, and that's at retail. So non-accredited investors, no minimums, no commission on trading. Um, And every Friday... And sometimes during the week, we run an IPO, which for anybody that's familiar with the financial markets, it's initial public offering. It's the first time a stock goes public where everybody can invest. We do that with everything. So I think from classic cars to Babe Ruth bats to Birkin bags to as we move into intangibles, things like wine, music rights, all these things that have a strong history of returns, but haven't really been accessible to the average person or the regular investor. So our whole goal is always connecting people with the things they care about and kind of letting them put their money where their mouth is and trade that the same way you might trade a stock. And that all happens within our app. Yeah. Wow. So cool. So in the end, how many people end up owning some vintage Ferrari? Yeah. So in any given sort of trading day or any, any given initial offering period, we'll have a few hundred to a few thousand investors in one object or one item. And then uh, when it trades, so it trades similar like BitAss, the same way you buy and sell stock. We bring some new people in, some other people exit. But at any given time, you have you know close to a thousand people in one asset. Wow. And and what's like the smallest I could invest? Uh, right now we have assets running for a dollar. So we have we always make sure there's a couple different price points. So it starts at a dollar for certain offerings. Some go up to a couple hundred bucks depending on the uh, total value of the item. But we have a bunch of different price points. So the idea is that, you know, someone might come in and love comic books. So they might, might love uh, Ferraris, vintage Ferraris. So they'll come in, they'll make that first investment. But really, we're trying to curate this world where any of the things that you care about are things that you can put your money into and you can invest in the same way as stocks. So if you came in for a comic book and you want to dabble with a baseball card or you want to jump into a bottle of wine, we always make sure there's a price point that makes it accessible where you can get a little bit of exposure, but not break the bank. So we start those around a dollar, it goes up to a couple hundred, but it varies on the asset by asset basis. Right. Okay. So so then what happens after like, I'm, I'm a huge Babe Ruth fan. I get access to investing in his bat. I buy a small share of the bat. Uh, I own it for some period of time. And now it's like, oh, wow, look, like the value of this bat has gone way up. What What happens for me next? Yeah. So after that IPO, there's a 90 day lockup period where no transaction can happen. It's kind of like a cooling off period. During that time, we continue to surface any news information that might affect the value, any auction results or insurance values. 
we uh, have a museum here in uh, Soho right now, which is our first sort of brick and mortar, where it's always on display and we make sure there's events happening around it. So we're trying to bring attention to those assets. And then after that 90 day period is up, uh, we open what's called a trading window. So the ability for you to sell at an S, you say, all right, on paper, this has gone up uh, 10%. And you might put an ask out the same way you would if you were selling regular stock for you know a 12% premium, see if anybody hits it. If someone makes a bid and wants those shares from you, those transact end of day at this clearing price so that you can exit your share and get your cash back. But we also always sort of field offers and we always sort of make sure we're listening to the marketplace. And if we feel like the best time to sell an individual item might be now, or if we have an unsolicited offer to buy it off the platform, which happens often, come in. We always go to our shareholders. We pull them. We see what their thoughts are about selling. And we'll, we'll be in a position to take it to market via auction, via private sale, or, or find an unsolicited bid to buy all the shares out, which has happened a few times in the past as well. Rob, I love it. It's, it's, I mean, it makes total sense. It's like, why did that not exist a few years ago? It's, it's, uh, it's one of these no-brainer things that seems really cool, and I see a huge opportunity ahead for you. So, Thank you. Appreciate yeah, it. yeah, I'd love to hear how this came to be, you know, how Rob got involved in this. You can start the story wherever you want. You know, you were an entrepreneurial kid designing baseball cards. Like, where, where, where do you think it began? I mean, it's kind of, that's actually pretty close. I know we haven't met before, but that's actually, you're pretty spot on to a certain degree. So when I was younger, um, I was always sort of, my mom was, was a chef and like an artist. And uh, my dad had a restaurant in Brooklyn. And it was just a lot of characters around at any given time. And like, I would start by sitting at the bar at uh, my dad's restaurant when I was really young after school. And I'd be like sketching people that came into the bar and hang out. And I really started to realize that art was kind of a passion, but it was something too that it's tough to make it into a job. So Throughout high school uh, and then into college, I went to school for art. Um, and it's something where, in my mind, it was like always kind of just get a degree and figure it out later. But you realize pretty quickly that it's hard to turn art into a job. So some of my earliest sketches were of cars and of sneakers. And that was always kind of a passion that turned into, uh, at least on the sneaker side, a little bit of an addiction and a, a way to spend money in a bad way. A lot of discretionary income going towards sneakers as a, a 19 or 20-year-old which now is not that dissimilar than it was for me 15 years ago. A lot of kids now spend all their money on sneakers. But as a way to marry those two things, which was for me, art and design and some of these really interesting collectibles, this was something that was always kind of like a floating idea. And myself, my two co-founders, Chris and Max, who I've known for a long time, we all had the things that we really cared about. For me, it was art, sneakers, a little bit of, of baseball and, and sports. For Chris, it was always about cars. For Max, he understood finance in a way that we really didn't, having done this at a really high level at Barclays and haven't been paying attention to it his whole life. Marrying all those things together and finding the idea that art design for me was the important conduit to turning things into something that I could sort of bring to life and product. It made a ton of sense to start with those collectibles that mattered the most to me too. The things that I was drawing when I was, you know, seven, eight years old and be able to design and build an app around that kind of took on a life of its own. And what was this really broad stroke idea between the three of us five years ago is now like a, a business that's taken off in a direction that I don't think any of us could have predicted. Yeah. Wow. So you're uh, a little kid spending all your money on sneakers, but you're saying, mom, but mom, these are an investment. I wish it was that easy. I was the only kid that didn't have Jordans when I was growing up. Like it was all the situations like you go to, you come back from summer break, you go back to school and like, there's always the one kid who has the brand new pair of Jordans and you're like, oh man, I wish I had his mom. It was one of those situations, you know, but then I would talk to my mom about it. Like my parents were a little bit younger and they kind of understood like what the motivations were for a, a 11 or a 12 year old. And it was like, trust me, that's not important. These things will be important at some point. And it kind of nailed home the idea 
of an, like an asset versus a liability for me really young, which was good. I think led to a lot of what we built here as well. Yep. Okay. So uh, I want to pick up with the story. You're trying to like, there were some parts that we skipped over in between not knowing what the hell you're going to do with an art degree and then starting yeah, I jumped straight there, dude. I jumped straight there. Starting this company. Um, maybe a, a touch on on that in between there. Like, did you figure? It sounds like you probably figured out a way to to make art into money, right? Yeah, I mean that, and it was a weird pathway to get there. So uh, I went to school in Philadelphia, and um, all my friends were here in New York, and I would come back often. So every weekend, I would, I would find myself in New York. I go to 30th Street Station in Philadelphia, and wind up here at Penn Station, and go back to Brooklyn, and just to hang out and kind of see what was going on here because all my friends were here. So you know, everybody was kind of like figuring out an internship or trying to figure out if, if, what they were going to do after school. And for me, it was like, I just wanted to get to work immediately. Like there were all these ideas I had. Um, I had been away from everybody for a long time. So I was meeting a bunch of new people and you're in these new social circles, trying to pick up on as much as you can and just seeing different views on life and different views on, on work in school. And my friends I made at school were just remarkably different than my friends I had here. And whereas friends I had here had very specific plans. A lot of them went to school for finance or, or for like a business in some capacity. They knew what they wanted to do after school. I really had no idea. I just knew that design was going to be the way to get there. So I started doing a lot of work for free. And this was like the birth of the internet a little bit. This is 20, 2000. I'm in school 2003, 2004. And the idea of like, uh, like MP3s were brand new. There was a lot of people putting out music that needed artwork to go with it because now there was this visual component of it. I wound up doing a bunch of work for free. I found myself on a bunch of like message boards and this is when the, in the history, like when AIM still existed, which it's an explorer and the idea of like America online is in messaging. No one that's 20 years old has any idea what that is now, but that was the, the way to communicate it before Slack, what Slack turned into. It was really easy to contact people and say like, I'll, I'll do some work for you for free. And that's what I was doing. So I was doing like logos and like covers for CDs and all these random things for these semi-known, but mostly unknown artists. What happened was I got super lucky. The, um, a box that got printed of cover art that I had done for somebody wound up in a print shop somewhere in Queens. And at the time, uh, Kanye West manager, John Monopoly at the time, was there picking up something else for, for a record label and saw what I had done and saw the work waiting to get picked up and said, who did this? And they said, me. He got on the phone and called me and said, uh, we're building this new label around Kanye. His album about to come out called Good Music. Uh, we got a check from Sony. We're going we're gonna to build the whole thing out like a startup if you want to come over here and work with us. And that was like the beginning of actually getting paid to work as a designer. And that led to a lot of awesome opportunities, but that was really the first step. Wow. Pretty so cool story. Luck, I said it was not, it was all pure luck. Yeah. Well, I mean, a career requires both like some hard work, which you were clearly doing by doing all that stuff for free. And then, yeah, that stroke of luck. Yeah. Preparation plus opportunity. That's how it always works. It's the idea that if you prepare for it, the opportunities do come. I, I do firmly believe in that for sure. Yes. If you weren't out there giving away your work for free, then there's, that would not have come for you. It's true. So I love that story. That's that's great. And then, okay, so now you're working for this cool music company. This has got to be like a dream come true. To a degree, it's weird because it's like uh, music is this thing where the industry itself is, is glorified. And it's a really, it's cool to meet people and everybody there is really grinding, but it's a 24-hour day job too. Mm -hmm. And the one thing there in particular is that everybody treated it like a startup. And this is before startups were really glorified. It wasn't a thing yet. But the idea was that, you know, use this as a tool. And I think I still take that with me wherever I go now, even at this company. It's what you're doing right now is a tool to where you want to be to a certain degree. So use all the network, use the connections, use the work you're working on, put in your personal portfolio, but max it out as much as you can here because this isn't going to be a forever thing. The idea was that everybody's using it as a, as a lane to get where you want to go. And for me, 
that was building a lot of, of really great connections, which I still have to this day, a lot of friendships. But thinking about where the future of this industry, that industry was going and where design was going to be, it wasn't going to be in the physical packaging and the tour merch and some of the things that really were prevalent in the early to mid-2000s. Because once the iPhone came out, it changed everything. So being prepared, understanding, learning a little bit of code along the way, working with some people who really were true creative directors and understanding that process was the most important part of that job because you don't make a lot of money. Like those out-of-school jobs don't make a ton of money most of the time. But that first sort of you know year and a half out of school for me, and I think for a lot of people now, is the most important in figuring out what you actually want to do. So you have the thing that you're going to do and you wind up there. You say yes the first time always and it's like a cool opportunity. But leveraging that into what you actually want to do as a career was the most important part for me. And this particular first role afforded me the opportunity to do it. And kind of, they were explicit about it. Like, this is, this is you need to figure out what you want to do after this because this is not a full-time thing. Right. So, yeah, like every single job, you learn what you like, what you don't like, and you start to whittle closer to what you were put on earth to do. So you took away yeah. some things that you liked, some things that you didn't like, and move on to the next. Yeah, absolutely. Then you kind of meet... It, it leads to a place where like, you don't want to get stuck. To me, at least, you don't want to get stuck doing the same thing. Once you, once you start to see yourself doing the same thing, no matter who you're working for or how cool the job is or whatever, like the, the great opportunity that's there, that once you get bored doing something, you're never going to put your all into it. And there's so many ways to make money now and to create careers that didn't really exist even 10 years ago. Access to information is so easy. To build right now is cheaper than it's ever been if you're building on the tech side. The ability to collaborate with somebody they've never met before, just you know, via DM or a quick conversation, turn that into something that you're both working on and passionate about, and potentially find co-founders that way has never existed like it does right now. So, you know, that was an awesome opportunity, and I still maintain so many different uh, friends and connections to music, and I'll still work on like albums every now and then for for individual artists that I came across on the way. But really, like 07, 08, there was the the iPhone comes out, the App Store follows. And now that changed the whole dynamic of where we are in terms of design, what design actually meant, and that transition from uh, what was an artist to a designer to a product designer happened really quickly through a lot of those same connections that I had that I made during music during the time of music. Right. So, did you see yourself kind of always staying in like that startup space, or do you think, oh, I can go work for Apple now? I've got like these connections and some little experience. Like, what, what were you thinking? Yeah, you th I mean, I thought that. And then I, as quickly as I started to put a resume together, I realized like I would love to be in a position where I could do something from zero and not be at the, at the huge brand. I think that's another big thing that's changed now. When I was younger, now, you know, 36 years old, you look back and it's like the be all end all back then was, was big names. And it was Apple. And like the idea of going independent or doing something on your own really didn't exist the same way it does now. It wasn't looked at as a, a viable opportunity. It was looked at as like something you do if nothing else works out. So like if you're in banking, it was always go to Goldman. If you're in tech, it was always go to Google, like in terms of where you are in New York, California. Now it's, it's being at a smaller startup that you truly believe in and being able to contribute to that success hands-on is so much more interesting to me, at least, and to a lot of people. And the opportunity is afforded. So if you want to work hard and you want to be at some, a place where you know, your fingerprint can be on the, on the pulse of what you're working on, you really contribute in a way that you're not one of 10,000, that's just as interesting now. And it gets just, just as much respect now as going to work for the Apple or the big company. So I've actually found myself in 2008 at a smaller startup here called Scroll Motion, which was building iPad apps for kids' books and for uh, big magazines like Esquire and a few others that, you know, the idea of bringing content to life was still brand new back then. So I don't want to date myself too much and talk like an antique, but that was so mind-blowing to so many people. And even though it's a small company, when you get, I got the demo of what they were working on and I saw some of the client list and the idea was like, just come in, throw some creative ideas around whatever sticks we'll run with. 
that was so much more interesting and appealing to me. And you get to prove it in a way where it's not just one of 10,000 people working on something. So that's where I wound up right after, right after good music and right after working inside that industry, which was, you know, preparing me to go work and start up more than anything else. Yeah, no, Rob, I mean, you've carved out an enviable position for yourself, like, you know, from going to not knowing how the hell I'm going to make money here to being able to like actually contribute and be part of the creative process and see my work come to life. Like, that's and and make money for all of that. Like that's uh, that's a pretty good combination. Yeah, there's nothing. You know what? It's weird too because like there's nothing wrong with making money for the stuff that you're working on too. I think that's like the in terms of like art and design. When I was young, the idea was like don't be a sellout was very much like a thing. The idea that like once you start taking money from a brand for your art, you sold out. You're not a, you're not an actual artist anymore. You're not you're not somebody who gets respect in the art world or as a designer. But now it's like the if you it's so much easier now to find a brand that aligns with your values too. So if you want to work on something, I say it all the time with like my little cousins and with people around me when when you know I have two or three kids that I mentor and, and people that from my old school that'll talk to me and put in the neighborhood. It's just like the every, the ability for you to sort of pitch yourself and be in the position you want to be in. It's never been easier to get to those positions right now. It's never been easier to get to somebody that you want to get to right now because everybody is on social media. Everybody's emails like. Super, super easy to find at this point. Being able to pitch yourself and separate yourself from a pack, there's more people going through the same stuff right now, but the ability to differentiate has never existed right now. I treat every one of these conversations, even today, I had four or five calls. We're talking to suppliers and people that we want to partner with at Rally. All these, these conversations, these relationships started with me pitching almost like a job in some capacity for a lot of them. They're just people I've known for five or six years now. And now I'm in a position to really lend value to what they do. And that pitch is not really that much different than I would be pitching if I was trying to get a job at one of these companies too, you know? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the story is fascinating. I'm, I love hearing about your your journey, Rob. I want to get into um, into the fintech side of this. Like we heard about this cool platform that you've built. You know, uh, why is that considered fintech? Yeah, so fintech is this weird loaded term at this point. It's, it's, tr- it's so new, but it doesn't seem it because it gets talked about uh, really romantically from a lot of different positions. So it's really, to use the baseball analogy, the first inning. So you have the idea that there's, there's finance, there's technology, both have been around long enough that it doesn't require explanation. But fintech is as well from a consumer perspective where you're shrinking down all that complexity and making it really uh, kind of like tucking away the complexity inside the interface. And the interface for us was really about emotion and brand and bringing things to life. So we thought about fintech you know, six, seven years ago as we were putting the idea for this on paper. You had Robinhood was out. It was kind of new still. Um, you had the old school like E-Trades and the Fidelities. And those were considered fintech, but it was with the interface of a web browser more than anything else. The idea of putting it in your hand for us, we always want to walk the line and rally between consumer and finance where they move seamlessly. We have a carousel of all these things that we really care about, but there's a financial motivation to it too. So for us, fintech and why we jumped into fintech was that it really, everyone was disrupting individual spaces. But in our mind, no one had done it in a way that was immediately recognizable and not talking down to an individual. So all these finance apps at the time, and even still now, a lot of them, it's a ticker symbol, it's some charts, and then it's a lot of complex and a little bit kind of condescending verbiage that speaks to people in a way that it's like, you don't know finance. We want to make it like, listen, here's a really, here's an awesome thing. Here's this 80s era Ferrari that you've probably seen a thousand times on Instagram. It's a really awesome aesthetic. But also, like, here's a quick story if you want to go through it that tells you why this is an important piece of cultural history. And that to us was the, the big tipping point in turning this from an idea into a true investment app was harnessing the ability to tell that story in a way that wasn't finance. Right. Oh, that's 
So cool. And so where does the company go from here? I mean, I assume more consumer stuff, but like, does it eventually just like become like, what does it become in the future? A bank? I mean, I think that the way we look at what we do right now, if, if I walk down the street in New York right now, I'm in our office in Soho and Soho is like starting to come back. You know, a little bit, you're starting to see more people on the street and more stores opening. You look around and you're surrounded by all these really important sort of social aspects of, of where we live in New York or what downtown looks like. And there's a bunch of street art. There's people walking down the street with like, you know, you might see somebody with a very specific watch on, like a vintage watch. You might see a cab drive by. And in my mind, like all these things I'm thinking about, I see, I see a cab drive by now. And it's so rare to see cabs on the street, by, like especially now, but everything is Uber. And I'm like, damn, the medallions that cab drivers pay half a million dollars for, they're worth nothing now. Like the, that whole market got crushed. So I'm thinking about all these little things I'm walking around as finance. And for me, as someone who wants to bring the most unique, interesting stuff to our platform on Rally, I look at the whole world as potentially investable. There's so many things that are owned by such a small group right now when it comes to these assets and the most valuable stuff. Opening up and democratizing that world, which can be anything, is always our goal. So we listen to our users, we listen to the world around us. You know, right now, baseball cards are super hot. And that's something that for the last you know, three or four years, we've been heavily investing personally in that marketplace. And I, I believe in it. So any of those things that we find that we believe in, should be on Rally. You should have the ability to invest in anything that you find value in. And you should have the ability to price that with a group of people who are as passionate about it as you are. So anywhere that passion intersects with finance is a place that we want to be as a platform. Yeah. So cool, Rob. So uh, I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, piece of advice for someone early in their career, first job, still in college, trying to you know get their first thing going, um, trying to align passion and business. Like, Why do you tell someone like that? Uh, it's right now the ability, the information is so accessible that I even now I lean on the same thing I leaned on when I was you know 15 years ago when I was in college that learn is inherit the earth and the idea is that you know the learned are always going to be there the idea of going to business school or or you know being an apprentice or being on the job everything's important but it's find your own way because the learners do inherit the earth the idea that this is move, we're constantly moving forward you know you can take some time off and everybody should just for mental health purposes not worry as much about what the future holds in terms of your bank account. But to be learning in the places that you find the most interest, that you're the most passionate about, everything can be a job right now. As long as you're constantly learning and you're open to learn new things, the opportunities are always going to be there. And that's not like the, the old school idiom kind of tuck it away and it's, it's a quote in a book. It's true. Everybody, no one's been more willing. There's never been a, a, a time where people are more willing to teach others and a time where more information is accessible. The idea that you can keep learning without having to go to school, it, to me, is something that's very, very relevant right now more than yeah, you know, Warren Buffett says take the job where you, you will learn the most, not the one that will pay you the most. So that's it. That's it. The, the money comes. You know what I mean? That, that's honestly the truth. I'm not just saying that from saying that from experience. That's because it's there. Like the money will always come if you're working on something you're passionate about. The cream does rise to the top, and your ability to sort of turn information into action has never been easier than it is right now. Everybody should be thinking that way, myself included. Well, I love it, Rob. This was so much fun speaking. Thank you again for, for coming on and sharing your story and the, the inspiration and, uh, and everything. It's just been, it's been really enjoyable. Alex, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. If you like moving up, the best way you can support us is by telling your friends and leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks.